There is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build a billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another another episode of Forward Thinking Investors, where we talk about all things investing. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Julia DeWalt, who's an angel investor. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Great. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. I know the last time we connected, it was like peak craziness. Clubhouse was just like, you know, totally at the, you know, the top of the world. COVID just happened and like so much, uh, so much has happened since then. So it's so good to, to finally get back on, on a call and, and, and jam on all things investing. Totally. I think my, yeah, hundred percent. So I think to just start us off, um, walk us through a little bit, just kind of, you know, a little bit of your career journey of how you landed on becoming an angel investor, kind of high level, a little bit about your background and, you know, that led you to this position now to be able to invest in startups. Sure thing. I started my career working at Bain as a consultant, which was just kind of laying the groundwork on all things business related. Um, but I quickly realized that all the interesting stuff was happening out in Silicon Valley. Um, so I should move myself to San Francisco, which I did uh, back in 2013. And I joined Open Door as the 10th employee there, was focused on operations and go to market, some product work. Um, but that was kind of, you know, fine product market fit, then uh, start scaling the company once, once we had found that uh, and kind of took us through that chapter. And, and one of the years in there, I was chief of staff to our CEO, Eric Wu as well. Awesome. So obviously, you know, that's a very notable company, you know, that has done very well, you know, from inkling to, to, you know, now public company. Um, walk me through, like, why are you now, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the show, we, before we started recording, you're an angel investor now. Why angel investor? Like, why not LP? Why not GP of a fund? Like, you know, is there any specific reason why you, you kind of maintain this kind of like angel investing status versus another type of investing? Sure. Uh, what I've loved about just being an angel investor running my own show is that I get to have total control over how much time I spend on it, um, which companies I invest in. And it's, you know, at this point, it's my own capital going into companies. And so um, I can do it at the, the level I want to um, and sort of not beholden to anyone. And I, I started angel investing while I was at Open Door. 
and actually Eric was um, one of the inspirations and kind of helped me get into it. And um, I was able to continue to operate at Open Door while doing some investing. Uh, after I left Open Door, I uh, moved down to Los Angeles to join SpaceX and have um, over the last couple of years been leading the go-to-market business operations team for Starlink and have been able to continue investing throughout that time. So I've found it to be something where I can um, continue to build companies and uh, work in that way, which I find very deeply satisfying, as well as um, remain engaged in, in the investing side where you're thinking about what does the future look like? Who's building interesting things? How can I support them in doing that? Um, but getting you know able to do that at kind of my own pace and, and sort of following my own rules. Totally. Well, as you've been doing it now for, for several years, I'm sure you've developed some opinions on things that you like, things that you don't, people that you like, people that you don't. So kind of like walk us through what, what do you, when you look at a, at a company or an opportunity, what are the things that you, you care about? Like, are you a market person, founder person? Obviously it's contextual, but like walk us through a little bit about how you decide to like an opportunity to start engaging in it. Yeah, sure. Markets are uh, always a really nice tailwind to have. So if you're looking at a growing market or just a, a massive market, such as you know, Open Door going into real estate, um, but growing markets, I think space is a great example of that. Um, those, those just give you such a nice tailwind that I think can lead to some really big outcomes, which is exciting. So I'm always excited about a, a big or growing market. Um, the, I think second to that is probably founders and, and founder qualities such as just grit, tenacity, hustle, that's definitely big in what I'm looking for in founders. It just takes so much to, you know, push the, 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 the boulder up the hill, right. That, um, you, you want someone who's gonna, you know, come back and, and do that day after day. Um, when, um, when things are really early, when things get tough. Um, so I think some of those founder qualities would be the other big thing I look for. Going to the first point there of markets, like obviously, there's been plenty of markets that have been very popular in Silicon Valley that led to, to not the best returns, and maybe they were overhyped. And then some markets that, I mean, maybe were underhyped for so long that they actually turned out to be like, you know, great market to invest in. So for you, how do you decide that a market is there? And like, are there markets that you observe that are early that, you know, there's a point in its evolution that you realize that it's now investable in? Or I just love to hear a little more about how you think about market evolution, because it's so hard to really pick the right market before the rest of the market of the investors. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think some of the, like, um, the Airbnb type models of, of, uh, I guess, I don't know if you call it hospitality or like where people are staying. Um, that, that was one that was certainly not obvious to begin with. And those are, those I think are difficult to find and, and hard to pin down. And, and, you know, we might be looking at them right now and not even realizing it. Uh, I wonder if even, you know, Clubhouse was one of those with just like different formats of community and, and there's going to be inevitably different ideas and options there that might work out. So I think there, I think it's, it, it's hard to, to say like, oh, we know what those, those things are right now. But once there's a glimmer of something new opening, um, there could be an opportunity for, for multiple companies in the space. Um, and so um, one, one company I'm really excited about that I invested in, in the last year is called Kindred. 
And that um, is, a, is a company that allows you to share your own home space with others on the platform. So you can do a home swap, go stay in someone else's house for, for credits and have someone stay at yours. So um, a little bit different than renting out your home, like the Airbnb model, but absolutely kind of, um, you know, Airbnb forged that path and they were able to continue on the trend, but kind of with a new version um, that feels like it, it kind of fits the, the tastes of, of kind of today's generation, right? And so you, you can find kind of some ways to, to weave into new, new sub-markets like that. Um, and then there are some ones that space, for example, like we think, we think it's going to grow a ton. I don't think we know the pace exactly that how it'll grow. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people are thinking about Starship right now. So there's, there's some um, there's some, you know, bigger de dependencies. I think that people are kind of sitting tight waiting for. Um, but I do think that one of the, that's one of those ones that we do. Most people would agree inevitably is going to be much bigger than it is today. But at what rate? And, and are you too early or too late to that to that market growth is always a big question as well. Um, and then there's some big markets out there. I think just software in general that we have seen to be. Um, you know, big high margin as a characteristic of that market. So make, making them compelling in, in some other ways. Um, so there's definitely, there's definitely like different flavors of markets and different currents that you might want to kind of try to attach yourself to. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you, you made the uh, example of Airbnb and I feel like they kind of just like, like Brian and the team would just like spearheaded this market and they had they took them so long and you know so much money and so much effort to create this market but you look at how it, they did and how they made out and like i feel like it's high risk high reward type of thing uh, and that's like you know when you're a trailblazer in the market like chances of failure are so high but if you are able to make it happen like rewards are also high and that's the whole that's the whole point of investing right you know a high risk high reward tell Absolutely. me about tell me about a little bit about um about nuclear you you mentioned nuclear uh, before we started recording, um, yeah, what what's interesting about nuclear to you, and like, what have you learned about it in the last several months or years? You know, to teach us something about it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I this has been an area I've gotten really excited about over the last six months or so, and um, nuclear energy is one of those things that's been misunderstood and I think just underutilized for a long time now. It has some very appealing qualities. It's carbon free. Uh, and uh, that's obviously important in a world where we care a lot about um, our carbon emissions. And we've set some pretty ambitious goals around that. And then secondarily, it is reliable. It's 24 seven. Um, so it doesn't have the intermittency, intermittency problems of solar and wind uh, and on the renewable side. Um, so it makes it a very, very compelling um, energy source. And, you know, it's, it's run into some, gosh, it's run into some headwinds along the way, uh, from the environmental movement back in the seventies. Um, it has not been able to come down the cost curve in the way that you would, you would like to see or the way you've seen solar panels, um, because we really stopped building new nuclear in the late eighties, uh, and haven't been, uh, really keeping up even the existing fleet. There's even been decommissionings of, of existing plants in the last couple decades. Um, but I think, you know, and I'm not, I'm not alone in this. I think people are looking around saying, we're going to need more and more energy. We're going to be electrifying more and more things. There's a whole developing world out there that's going to need um, more electricity, more energy. 
Um, so, and, and we want to do this in a um, energy transition, moving away from fossil fuels manner. So we need to revisit nuclear. Uh, so I've been excited about looking at it again to say, what are the bottlenecks in the space? And just like any other market, you're kind of, you know, turning it over and saying, okay, what about the regulatory side? What about, um, you know, the government support side? What about like public opinion? How much does that matter? Uh, and, um, and then I think finally the cost question is a really big one. So um, it's just been an area I have been excited about. I mean, energy is sort of the root of all prosperity and, and, and everything we do. Um, and I think looking at it from a venture perspective makes it a little more challenging because it is incredibly capitally intensive with very long timelines. Um, but there have been uh, some, some interesting breakthroughs in the last few years, uh, both the, the Department of Energy with some interesting programs uh, for funding, as well as with the IRA this year, providing subsidies to nuclear for the first time in its history, right? There, there have always been renewables subsidies, even some fossil fuels subsidies, um, and now there are subsidies for nuclear. So it makes, their, makes for a very compelling why now around nuclear. And so I think, you know, I've been I've been talking to some really early stage companies who are thinking about building new reactors or even taking existing reactors, especially the small modular ones, um, licensing them and um, bringing them to market in in kind of new business model type ways. Um, so that's that's a it's an area that I think is not an obvious venture um, type market, but just given a lot of the I think new developments this year and, and renewed interest in the technology, um, I think there could be a pretty bright future there. I mean, I think it's like also so important for the world that we figure that out. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, like, I, I, you know, I followed nuclear lightly over the last several years. And I, you know, I'm seeing like what Chris Saka is throwing down. I'm seeing what a lot, like one of my investors is into, into nuclear as well. And it's just like, I just think we just got to figure it out. And like, you know, you being involved in learning about it and putting money there, you know, either you already have, or you will, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it, it only helps. So I love that going back to um, what you're talking about with angel investing, a thought popped up that I wanted to ask. So one of the benefits of having a firm is you, you, you invest in a company and then you have a, maybe a team. If you're maybe a larger firm, a couple of associates or something like that, they like help them and they help them close deals and you help them get more capital and things like that. But as an angel investor, you, you know, you're just you, you don't have a team. It's just you and you only have 24 hours in the day. So I'm curious, how do you manage like supporting your portfolio or do you set expectations of like you won't or is there something in the middle? Like how does yeah. that all work? <laughs> That's a great question. I think, I think two things come up here. One is, um, I think it's really important when you are an angel investing and doing a lot of other things to, well, it's probably important across the board to be um, really genuinely excited about the team, the space, the product, um, so that it never feels like a burden to work on it. And uh, that is, that's something I try to be, you know, just continue to raise the bar for what deals I say yes to, because I know that I, I want to be there for that team in the future um, to support them with whatever is going on. And um, so I think that, yeah, again, that, that is, that's probably, probably pretty universal. And the second thing I'll say is, you know, people understand that I'm, I'm an angel investor, also building other things. Um, so I don't think maybe the demands are quite as high or the expectation isn't quite as high uh, compared to a fund, let's say, that has, you know, various departments, engineering departments, marketing departments, whatever else um, that they sort of have advertised, you know, please to please to take advantage of these and, and get some leverage from it. Another question on those same lines is that, you know, being a VC, I think is very different 
you know, three years ago than it is today. Markets have completely shifted. LPs aren't, you know, putting out as much capital, things like that. Um, but you as an angel, like, you know, you're kind of your own LP. So I'm curious, like, are you impacted by the markets at all as an angel investor? Or can you just keep a business as usual? How, how do you think about the macro with your investing practice? Yeah, I mean, I think like everyone else, as an individual, I've been impacted by uh, the macro environment. And so, you know, 2022 feels a lot different, I think, from on people's personal balance sheets um, compared to 2021. And so I think that does impact, you know, people's psyches and, and even like how much money they have to deploy, um, depending on kind of how they navigated the last couple of years. And um, so I imagine that myself as an angel investor, I'm sure that the other individuals out there are probably, you know, just giving thought to their own balance sheet. And it's a good reminder that uh, investing uh, in, in venture is uh, a long timeline, right? Seven to 10 years on average to get returns. And if you are deploying too fast, especially through boom cycles, uh, you can, you know, you can get yourself a little bit off balance. And so I think it, it's a very healthy reminder that um, this, this is a long-term game and it, it's both a long-term game in the really fun sense, right? Like being an investor, you get to imagine what, you know, what's the future we're all excited about? What does the future look like? What do I want to invest in? But you're also saying, okay, what are, what are going to be my cash needs in three years? And am I locking all my capital up for over, over seven? And, you know, is that not going to make sense for me? So it's, a, it's actually gotten me to think about, um, how am I balancing my, my angel investing with public equities, investing, real estate, other things to, to, and, and, you know, thinking about how do I keep a balanced portfolio, um, going into the you know years to come. What have been some other things, you know, since maybe when you first got started angel investing to now that you maybe learned, um, along, along the years, are there any lessons that you've taken away? You know, you've just shared a couple of them, which are super valuable, but like, is there anything else that you, you know, could look back on your former self and be like, oh, like I wouldn't have done that or something like that? <laughs> it's funny that the, I think the biggest thing I have learned as an angel investor is um, to really like keep your eyes out on the horizon. And that is, that is a, I mean that in the broadest, broadest sense um, that uh, to identify, let's say those new trends and new markets or to identify even, even just keeping your head up for young talent that's that's coming onto the scene. You notice someone on Twitter who's saying something interesting or you meet someone at a conference uh, that's just got like some interesting new takes on things um, who maybe wants to brainstorm on an idea, you know, take those opportunities. And um, so it's gotten me to, to I think, be a bit more optimis optimistic, long-term thinking, um, taking a second look or, or slowing down when something catches my eye. Uh, because that is, uh, if you're, if you're a little too, if you don't allow for any sort of spontaneity, um, or just curiosity, you, you might miss things. And, um, so I think that that's been important. And then, and then I do, I do really do think that I've, I've learned a lot about just long-term financial thinking with, with investing. And especially now that I've been in this for multiple years, you do realize that it takes a while for, for returns to come back and you do see things shut down. Um, and so you realize that it, it really is a long game. I, you know, whenever I become an investor, which will be after my current, you know, you know, whether it's in 10 years or 30 years, you know, at some point I'd love to invest because I think I've, I'm skilled at finding people. I'm a, it's called seed scout. Like I'm a scout. Right. Um, but I can't imagine what it's like to put money into a company. Then like 10 years later, just get this fat check in your account. Like, Oh, here you go. Like good work. You know, here's a million dollars or here's 
$10 million, you know, whatever. That just blows my mind that this industry can produce results like that. But that's the benefit of being in, in, in tech and venture capital. Like if you're right, it pays well, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. So to, to kind of round this out, um, if someone wanted to learn more about you on the internet or maybe learn more about your investing, um, where can they find you? Like, are you on Twitter? Do you have a newsletter or a podcast? Like where, where can someone kind of learn more about you um, and your investing style potentially? Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a personal website, which is my name, juliadewall.com. I actually just posted a uh, nuclear essay on there. So um, feel free to take a, take a, take a read and um, let me know what you think. And then yes, I'm active on Twitter. Um, I do not yet have a, a podcast, but podcasts are fun. I've thought about it. <laughs> and you can also find me on Farcaster. Ooh, I have one last question. What, what I know like I've seen Farcaster. I haven't about that, you know, what, okay. What's Farcaster and what's your take on Farcaster? This will be the last question of, of, of the podcast. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah. Um, what, what is it? And what's your take? <laughs> Farcaster is a, uh, decentralized social network, uh, most similar to Twitter and, um, is very big in the crypto community. It has, it is partially built on Ethereum. And the idea there is that, um, you cannot be deplatformed and that there are ways that you can manage your own client and kind of the experience that you're having with the social network different than let's say a Twitter, which is very top-down centralized. They may, they decide all the rules, um, and they could kick you off at any time. Uh, and you don't get to take your, your audience with you. Right. And so, um, that's why I've been excited about Firecaster and it's been, it's been fun to be part of the, the small but growing community there. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. I keep seeing popping up. Maybe I got to reach out to DWR, right? Is it DWR on Twitter? That's right. I mean, I, you, you DM at DWR on Twitter and, oh. and that's how you get an invite. All right. Well, it's, if you're listening to this, like this is like the, the, the fringe curiosity thing, people. So reach out to DWR. Maybe you could be part of the next big thing. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate you sharing everything that you have and best of luck, you know, finding the next 10 unicorns in your portfolio. Thanks so much.